Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Glad to have you here. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you being here. Hey, we have a great conversation today with my friend Vanessa Van Edwards. She runs the site Science of People. You can check it out over at scienceofpeople.com. Vanessa has been in the speaking industry for a long time. Uh, we talked through how she got her start. Uh, she got her start largely speaking in the education market, speaking to high schools and colleges. And then she decided actually she didn't feel good about it anymore, morally and ethically. We talk about why she made the shift, where she made the shift to, and uh, how she decided to, to do that. She's today incorporated a lot of data research into her presentation. So we talk about why she made that shift. And also, she is in the process of making a uh, halfway across the country move in large part to help her speaking business. So we talk about where she's moving and why she's doing that and how it might help your business too and something to consider. So last to get to with Vanessa, one thing we also talk about is speaking fees, how she continued to increase her speaking fees. So this is a question we get a lot from speakers are going, Grant, how much should I charge? And to be honest with you, the answer is it depends. And that's a horrible answer. And so uh, if you're interested in knowing how much you should be charging as a speaker, we put together a free speaker fee calculator that you can check out over at myspeakerfee.com. Again, that is myspeakerfee.com. You just answer a couple questions. It'll spit back a number of what you should be charging as a speaker. So make sure you check that out over at myspeakerfee.com. All right, that uh, let's let's get into this conversation with uh, Miss Vanessa Van Edwards. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Today, joined by my friend Miss Vanessa Van Edwards. Okay, so we were talking a little bit beforehand. Vanessa and I are those people that like, okay, we know each other, we've known each other. How do we know each other again? And so we had to like really connect the dots <laughs> to go back a minute to, to get to the point. I think we've known each other for like 10 years. I think so. I think so. It's one yeah. of those like, yeah, just uh, enough mutual friends that you're like, I don't know, just by like proximity, you're like, yeah, we're friends, but yeah, we're friends. how do we know each other? Where does this come from? So nonetheless, good to connect again and to get <laughs> caught up here. We've been uh, chatting about all things life and uh, she's getting ready to move to Nashville. Uh, maybe. I know. I found out you, you're in Nashville and I just, I just got to come. I have to be in the same city as you. This is the place. This is the place to be. So thanks for hanging out with us. First of all, uh, why don't you give us a quick nutshell on you? What's the science of people, which is the business that you run? And talk to us about speaking and how speaking fits into your world. Yeah, sure. So we are a human behavior research lab. So we do interesting, fascinating, original research on human behavior. And what we do is we try to take the latest science and then turn it into actionable case studies, tips for business and professionals. And so we have courses, books, and I do speaking. Do you come from a 
like a research-based background or like, where does that come in? Because that's definitely like, there are some speakers who are like, here's kind of my life experience and I'm going to share that or my professional experience or whatever. And then some come at it from more of like what you're saying, like more of a data-based scientific approach. And here's my findings I'm going to share. So has that always been you or like you always just kind of been like the data nerd scientist geek or is that you? Actually, it's, it's funny because in my very first early part of my career, which we can talk about where I was doing a lot of speaking, I noticed that the slides that killed, the slides that did the best, the slides that got the most laughs and the most ahas and the most questions were always the research slides. Really? And that happened very accidentally. When I first started speaking, I was not speaking about the research and science was not the center of my talk at all, but I had these really interesting studies to back up what I was talking about. And when I shared those, it was like my audience leaned forward. You know, I, I would literally hear, oh, yeah. <gasps> and I became very addicted to those. I'm addicted to aha moments. <laughs> you know, when you literally hear someone say aha in the audience, there's nothing better as a speaker. Yeah. And so I started adding more and more and more. And by the end of it, I had a talk that was pretty completely research and science-based. So yeah. it happened purely because it works. Interesting. So how much, for context sake, how much speaking are you doing today? Who are you typically speaking to? Yes. So before I had a baby, because uh, that can slow down your speaking career a lot, yeah. I was probably doing maybe four to six speaking engagements a month. Okay. Now it's probably more like two speaking engagements a month, but that's okay. going to start ramping up again. Okay. How many would you like to be doing? Like what would be ideal for you? So ideally, I would like to do no more than one out of my location, like one travel one a month. And I would love to be doing like six in my city. Okay, gotcha. And who is it that you're typically speaking to? Almost always, it is a small, midsize and large companies. Usually it's small, medium and large companies and then conferences. And it's typically a very professional set. So it's, you know, Fortune 500s, emerging managers, HR conference for a multi-level marketing company for their sellers. So usually very professional. I, I don't do a lot of um, like personal or uh, self-development conferences anymore. Okay. So in terms of like the, the, the talk, the presentation itself, again, you mentioned that you come from like a, a human behavior standpoint. So what would a typical talk be for one of those audiences? Yeah. So my most popular talk is master your people skills. So it's okay. like 10 people skills every professional should know. My second most popular talk is the science of charisma. So why are we charismatic and how to increase your influence, impact, and income. Um, so those are my two most popular talks. So charisma, people skills, communication, leadership. My third most popular talk pretty high up there is the power of body language. So that's okay. a purely body language, nonverbal training. Okay. So any of those type of topics, people skills, charisma, body language, are things that arguably could be relevant to anyone personally or professionally. Yeah. So, and you mentioned that like, you know, you speak to a variety of different sizes of companies, a variety of different types of conferences. So how have you found the balance between here's a topic that appeals to humans and just people and all, all people, everyone. And so how do you find that balance between like, here's something that is relevant to everyone, but mm -hmm. I know that if I try to appeal to anyone and everyone, I'm going to really appeal to no one. So how have you found the balance that has worked for you? So typically what I, the way that I think I book the most gigs, so it's not just like so broad is these are the skills that your people can use at the actual conference. Okay. So a big need that I hear is we have a bunch of engineers coming to do a, an all team retreat <laughs> and they don't talk to each other because they all work virtually and everyone's an introvert. So we want to have one workshop at the beginning of the retreat okay. that's on communication. 
Okay. So that is how it's been really great is that I say like attendees can use these at the networking event following my speech or let me be your opening keynote and I will kick everyone off with specific tools they can use to do better at the conference. So that's been the way that I've been able to really hone it into something like your attendees need this because it will make your conference better. How have you landed on that? Because it sounds like something that even as you're talking about it, it's kind of an aha for me. Like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. But outside looking in, you may not connect those dots initially. So is that something that just like, okay, I'm speaking, I'm speaking, I'm speaking, I'm speaking, and I'm realizing, wow, here's a real need that organizations and events have. And I know how I can, I can solve that problem. How have you kind of come to that point? Actually, it happened through my course. So we have one big flagship course. It's called People School. And it's very, it's like a master level people skills course. It's geared towards professionals. It's a, not a cheap course. And so we have a lot of Fortune 500s who go through it. And I found a pattern that we typically have three buckets of students. So our first bucket is introverted entrepreneurs. So they're people who are like killing it in their organization and they're very skilled, very brilliant but have had a bad performance review on the people side or they're managing for the first time, like they're graphic designers, they're engineers. And for the first time they have people under them. And so I've noticed that they're coming to me with very specific, like actionable needs. And they'll say things like, I have an all hands retreat coming up. I need to finish this course before I go to that retreat. And that gave me the idea of one, I should try to ask to speak at their retreat, which a lot of them I do. And then two, I bet you HR managers are actually worrying about this too. We also have HR managers who go through our training to be able to give their introverted or their ambiverted employees skills before a conference or a retreat. Yeah. I just saw the need from my students and then realized that was a really good marketing angle for the people that I was pitching for speaking events or that were contacting us. You mentioned introverted entrepreneurs. What Mm -hmm. were the other two buckets that you have? Introverted entrepreneurs and then goal-oriented extroverts. So our extroverts who, this is a much smaller portion, but they're really good at people skills and they're obsessed with self-development. Okay. Like they're highly ambitious. They read every self-help book. They've memorized how to win friends and influence people. And they just love leveling up. And the last one is ambitious entrepreneurs. So okay. that last one is like side hustlers, entrepreneurs where they're like, oh my gosh, for the first time I have to learn to pitch myself. Yeah. I have to, I have to raise money. I have to speak publicly. And a lot of them have never done that in their actual job before. And so they take people school for those skills. Okay. I'm going to take a complete rabbit trail for a second here. Yeah. Do you find that <laughs> I know what my observations have been, but I'm curious on you. Do you find that most speakers are more introverted or extroverted? Ambiverted. Is that a combination of both? Yes. Yeah, so amber, that's actually one of that term kind of has changed my business. It was a game changer for my business. So okay. Ambivert, it's not a term I've come up with. It's actually in the research. And it basically speaks to the fact that extroversion is actually a scale or a spectrum as opposed to a label. Now, we have to label just for ease of conversation, but it's actually, there's three labels, introverts, ambiverts, and extroverts. And most of the population are actually ambiverted. So ambiverts, I'm an ambivert, is when you absolutely can be extroverted with the right situation and the right people. You can turn on your extroversion with your goals. So for example, one of my goals is to help people through speaking. I must be an extrovert on stage. I have to turn that up in certain times, but I also need a lot of recharge time. Like I literally, if I can, I don't speak before a speaking event. Like I literally want to be silent the whole day. Ambiverts also have certain situations that really put them in to survive. You know, like I really don't like loud networking events or like happy hours at bars. Whenever I do a speaking event and they're like, Hey, would you mind schmoozing? I'm like, Nope, Nope. 
nope, I will do an extra half an hour for you on stage. I cannot go to the happy hour. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. So yeah, that's an ambivert. Interesting. Okay. What you just described it fits me to a T. And mm. I find that that's the case with a, a lot of speakers is we assume, okay, you're the life of the party. You're up on stage and you come alive. Therefore, you're like that off stage. And the reality is, is like, that's not oh. the case. Like most speakers I know are off stage are very awkward, quiet, shy. <laughs> like I no people talk to me. I just want to go to my room and be left alone. Yes. Uh, so that's, it's interesting. It's just kind of interesting dichotomy from the perspective of an audience, assuming that like, oh, that's what you must be like in real life. And it's like, uh, yes and no, you know, the, you know, have you watched the comedians in car getting comedians in cars, getting coffee, yes. Jerry Seinfeld show yeah. with Eddie Murphy? Yes. The, it's brand new. So it's brand new. And this blew my mind. And I was, I was like, rivet at the edge of my seat because Eddie Murphy did not seem like Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Like you watch it and you're like, where's Eddie Murphy? Right. Right. And that's because I so relate to that because in my YouTube videos and on stage, I am a version of me. It is me, but it's me, my highest, most dialed up self. Yeah. That most of the time otherwise. And I think that people feel really disappointed if they meet me before or after an event and A, I'm exhausted, right? I'm drained from the actual event. But B, I'm not talking to them like this. I am so excited to meet you. Let me tell you all about these scientific principles. Like that's, <laughs> how I, that's, that's called YouTube voice, you know? Right, right. And so I think that yes, I would say 95% of every speaker or entertainer or YouTuber I've ever met is exactly the same. And most people are ambiverted. So you're not alone if that resonates with you. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. I don't, I don't feel like I'm alone. Uh, and by the way, I will say there's also different people tips for each of those types of person people. So the reason why I split up our students into introverts, extroverts, and ambiverts is because I literally have different slides for them. An ambivert needs different skills than an extrovert in maintaining energy over a conference. Yeah. So do two different things. So, okay. So how would you do that? So if you're presenting to an audience where you know that I have three totally different types of people in here, all who need three totally different things, mm-hmm. how are you breaking up a presentation to appeal to everyone and make sure that you're scratching the itch for each of them? Yeah. So in that, this is like one of my favorite things to do. If I have a presentation where I want to dive into the three different personality buckets, I first start off with a self-assessment, which people love, right? Like everyone loves personality quizzes. I can do them from stage. I can break up small groups depending on the size of my group. So it's first, it's kind of like a fun self-assessment. If I'm in a really small group, like a corporate group, I will actually have them move around the room to be with their people. So I'll say, okay, "Okay, I want all my ambitious ambiverts in this corner. I want all my goal-oriented extroverts in this corner. I want all my adventurous introverts in this corner. And then I also say, go meet your opposite, right? Like I want you to go talk to an opposite person. So if I'm in a corporate setting, I can do a lot of things with that. So that's the first thing is self-assessment. The the next thing I do is I'll have literally a different slide for each person. And what's important is I say, okay, my adventurous introverts, this is your slide, right? Here's what you need to know about maintaining your energy or networking or pitching yourself or being charismatic, depending on the topic. All of my extroverts and ambiverts, I want you to listen very carefully to this slide for the introverts in your life. Think of the introvert in your life right now. How can you gift them these skills? And so it becomes this really, and then if if I'm in a corporate setting or a small group, I will say, look at the introvert who I'm talking to and ask them if they resonate with this. Yeah. Talk to them about this. So that's how I'll balance out that kind of breakdown in the talk. Interesting. All right. I want to come back to a second now to get off the rabbit trail. How did you get started as a, as a speaker? Hmm. So I was uh, at the very beginning of my career, a long, long time ago, when I was a teenager, 
Yes. I was doing peer mentoring. So I was mentoring other teenagers. So I was, I think 18 or 19 at the time. And so I was working with like 14 and 15 year olds as a peer mentor. Okay. So helping them with study skills, organization, confidence, everything from writing college applications to running for student body president to crafting their extracurriculars. Like I was literally just like an informed peer mentor I would say things that parents couldn't say to their kids. That's literally what I was doing. And it was really fun. And I had a mom who was PTA president and she said, Hey, would you mind doing a talk for parents who they knew that they might not be working with you, but maybe you could give them a couple of skills that they could do with their kids. Okay. You know, I never thought about that before. So she's like, you know, just put together a couple of your skills and, and teach parents how to teach them. And then she said, Hey, would it be okay if before or after I also had that grade come in and you could talk directly to them so then they can go talk to their parents. And that became my new speaking formula was I will talk to both the teens and parents one after the other so that everyone can have better conversations. Interesting. And so I did that for PTAs and schools and youth groups and camps speaking to both teens and parents. There were very few speakers at the time who were doing both groups and who encouraged or facilitated conversation afterwards. So you were able to kind of bridge the gap between them. That was the whole selling point. Mm -hmm. Almost just be like an interpreter of here's what they're really saying over there. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. The cultural interpretation. Yes. Generational interpretation, translator, bridging the gap. Those were were literally all in my marketing material. It's as if you read it, Grant. How did you do that? Right there. You start doing some of these gigs where you're like, okay, I'm speaking to one audience and I'm speaking to the other audience. I'm speaking to students and I'm speaking to parents. Like at what point did you realize, because it's one thing to like, okay, I've done some random one-off gig and that was fun. That went well. But what point do you realize like, no, no, there's really something here like there's a lot of these opportunities that exist that I can replicate this and I can do more events like that. I don't think I ever had that realization until I was so busy that I was never home. So it wasn't like I was like, I see an opportunity here. It was more like this school wanted me and then this school wanted me and then this PTA wanted me. And then, and then it was four years later and they wanted me to come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so like, it was just, I was getting all these bookings where I had no time for other things. And then I was like, yeah. Oh, I guess this is a thing. Like, I guess yeah, I'm a right. speaker. <laughs> So it happened very, very organically in the beginning, especially. Were you enjoying it? I really, really liked it in the beginning. I thought it was extremely fulfilling work. Where my flipping point happened, where I stopped working as much with teens and parents was when I had this horrible, what I felt like was a moral and ethical challenge, where I had a private school in Beverly Hills approach me and say, Hey, we can pay your rate. We'd love for you to come and do this in-depth training. Wonderful, wonderful. And then I had a public school in Compton contact me and say, Hey, we can't afford even close to your rate. Would you come and do this amazing workshop? And I was like, wow, this is really hard. (laughs) This is really hard. Like I want to be able to do both. And I don't like that. I can't that. And I started to do a couple pro bono events, but then every school wants to be pro bono because every school is a nonprofit. And it put me in a really, really hard position where I was like, I don't want to be charging any school. (laughs) I don't want to be charging any PTA. Like, I don't want to max out a PTA's budget. Like, that sounds horrible. And so, very, very quickly, I started to get so booked up that I had to be charging more because I just had I had no time for anything else. But I felt really bad for charging more because I was charging this to schools and churches and nonprofits, and it felt and youth conferences, and I just. 
I didn't feel good about it. And so that's when I started to think about, could I do something professionally for businesses who could really afford it? And then when I was speaking to youth, I could do it fully pro bono. Right. And that was the beginning of starting to go into more corporate. And so now whenever I do youth events, it's always pro bono. So I'm curious then how you landed on that, meaning that like to be devil's advocate, you are still running a business and you still have to eat and live indoors. And so no matter like the goodness of your heart, and one of the things I found like among speakers is that we do this because we enjoy speaking, but we genuinely enjoy making an impact. And so- (sighs) Whenever you are, uh, if you write a book or if you publish something online, you don't often see the impact that's being made because you're not there with the person when it's happening. But when you're speaking, and like you said, you see the aha, I literally saw the light bulb moment. I know that I'm providing value. I know that I'm making difference. And so there's, there is financial value that I should receive for doing that. So Mm -hmm. how do you find the balance between like, I genuinely want to help people, but if I do this pro bono everywhere I go, just because I have a huge heart means that like I'm doing it at my own detriment, even though I helped everybody else out. So how do you find that balance? The balance was super easy for me. It was, I feel really good charging corporate high, high rates because they can afford it. And I do not want to charge schools anything if I can help it. Yeah. The higher my rates got, the worse I felt helping people at schools. And I was like, this is crazy. And so I love speaking to schools and I love being able to say, and I'll do it for free Yeah, you know, or, you know, pay my travel. Whatever. Right. And so that was a really easy line for me. That was the only way I could reconcile it. Like even when I would speak at a private school that has a huge endowment and a parent sponsored it and they have plenty of money, even then I was like, I would rather not charge these people. I would rather them use this for buying more textbooks or fixing their building or offering more scholarships than having to charge them. And so the only way I could do it was to split it up. Very cool. So you make that decision of just like, okay, I gotta, I gotta change the business model. I gotta change what I'm doing. Had you started doing some corporate things at that point? Or is it like a, on a, I'm on a Friday going, I can't do another youth thing. I need to change this up. And on Monday, like crap, I gotta figure this out. Or how did that evolution come to be? Yeah. So it was a little bit slower. So I started to get a couple of professional or corporate gigs and the sales process was so much easier. So at a school, you know, I would send them my rates and they'd be like, Oh, do you make any exceptions? (laughs) Right. Right. Would you mind staying at this parent's home because we can't afford to put you in a hotel? You make really good waffles. You're going to love it. Yeah. Would you mind eating at the cafeteria because we don't have a lunch budget? Like that, okay? So like that was a sales process with schools and it was killing me. Whereas I had a couple parents who were, who were like, you know, we love... So at this point, I was very science heavy in my presentations, right? So I was doing a lot of corporate... I was doing a lot of schools and I found that these research studies were just doing so well. I would, I would make a point and then I would give three studies and people would be like, got it. Yeah. So it was a very science heavy presentation, but of course, a lot of my studies were not youth or parenting based. Yeah. A lot of my studies were professional based, yeah. you know, like there's more research in the corporate world. So I had all these communication studies, teamwork studies, collaboration studies that I was using for youth, but actually they were quite geared for adult communication and consumption. So I had a parent and one of the audiences say to me, you know, I love all these communication tips work for anyone, right? Like at that point, very specifically, I can, I can tell you, I was teaching a workshop on how to read your child's body language. 
That's what I was teaching. And all the research had nothing to do with youth. It was all about body language, micro expressions, uh, nonverbal micro messages. That's what they're called. And a parent came up to me and she was like, you know, this is a great presentation. I want my team to have it. You know, I run a sales team. Yeah. I would love for them to just have it. Can you just do it for sales? I was like, sure. And she's like, great. Next Friday. I was like, what? And she's like, what do they pay you here? And I told her and she was like, oh yeah, yeah. Next Friday. Yeah. <laughs> she said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to my highest rate. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> what? This is new. I was like, oh, and I realized that my school rate for corporate didn't matter. Like yeah. that was their lunch budget. You right. know, like that, what, like they were like, great. Can you come every week? And <laughs> like that was happening. <laughs> that started happening so easily that I was like, okay, like, A, I'm not even advertising to corporate. Corporate doesn't even know I'm a speaker. The moment I begin putting out the word that I'm going to be doing that, I can easily start replacing some of those other budgets. And so that's what I started doing is more and more. I was asking, then I started asking for more referrals. I decided to pivot. So my old website, I pivoted to the science of people, which is much more broad. I put my youth, you know, kind of tab. I had a tab for parents and teenagers, and then I had a corporate tab. And then I started writing articles for both, started reaching out to both, changed my LinkedIn profile to not be, you know, youth and parents speaker. So it was actually pretty easy just because it was so much easier to book corporate. So it sounds like though, it was like some of the, the shift that was taking place was organic in terms of you just saying like, here's where the market's leading me. Here's where the opportunities are. Here's the shift in the business that makes more sense. And then you kind of making the adjustments accordingly of like, okay, I talk about this research-based stuff with this audience. So yeah. I'm being asked to do more of corporate audiences or sales audiences. And so what would it look like to do that same type of talk? And in your, like you said, in your marketing materials, your website, I'm making those changes to reflect that accordingly. So it sounds it like- the a lot marketing- easier than I thought. It was a lot easier than I thought. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like once it was literally actually removing words. That's the funny thing. It was actually harder to sell to youth and parent because it, it was a more niche space. And so right. my landing pages got shorter. Instead of teaching parents how to communicate better with each other and back and forth and being a translator for them, I was, how to teach you how to communicate better. Yeah. So much shorter. <laughs> okay. But again, like going back to what we talked about at the beginning, to be devil's advocate, the more big, broad, vague it is, the more people are just like, well, is that for me or is it not for me? Right? Because there's it's, people want to feel like that's, oh, she's speaking exactly to me. And so teaching people how to communicate better could be relevant to anybody and everybody. So how did you find yourself not going too broad or being too big or being too vague where people are like, I don't really know if this is for us or not? So basically in the beginning, I was almost exclusively teaching body language. So instead of saying how to communicate better as a broad topic. It was how to communicate better using powerful body language because there was actually search traffic around that specific term. Instead of going to a niche, like a person, like instead of being like, I teach sales or I teach teenagers. Instead, I was like, I'd rather niche a topic and like know my topic so well. The reason why I picked body language was one, I loved it. I loved it, loved it, loved it. I had a huge database of body language research. And second, there is no master's degree in body language. So instead of teaching on psychology or communication, which there is obviously PhD or master's programs in it, there wasn't a master's degree that you could get or a doctorate that you could get in body language. And so all of the experts in body language were people who just were reading a lot of the research and had really great savvy tips. 
Yeah. And I was like, okay, like I don't need to have academic background in this. I don't have to go back to school. Second, I have a huge database of body language study. Third, I can do my own body language research, which is what we started to do. And fourth, it was this really interesting niche where I would literally get people who were like, Google, body language speaker for HR, <laughs> body language conference, Austin. Yeah. <laughs> like people were actually searching for that. So it was a different way that I niched down, not for a person, but on a topic. Okay. Interesting. And so that I find that most speakers feel like one of, uh, in terms of like, here's who I speak to, and this is the problem that I solve. One side of it is specific and one side of it is more broad. And so for you, it sounds like the specific side is I'm going to speak about body language, this very specific, you know, human interaction, personal skill, but who I talk to could be relevant to a variety of different people. But what I talk about is going to be specific. Exactly. Now, since then, I talk about way more than that. Like now, body language is probably my third most popular talk yeah. because I was able to broaden as I got bigger. Totally, totally. Exactly. And that's a key point to make is that you can broaden over time, but like from the beginning, it's not, well, I talk about any, what do you want me to talk about? I can t- talk about people uh, and like that doesn't work. But over time, yeah. you can evolve and start to add some of those different topics and different uh, messages that you may speak to. So, all right. You, so you start speaking on body language. You're pulling from a lot of different research there. And at what point did you decide I'm pulling from all this like third party data? Like we can just do this ourselves because that feels like a totally different skill set and a totally different beast to tackle. Like I'd rather just read the research than actually do the research. So is that again, something that you felt passionate about? Like, I think we could do this better and specific to what we're needing. How did you get into the research game then? So the way that we got into it was pretty easy was that every study I read was like N equals 75, N equals 200. So like basically it was on 75 people or the research was on a hundred psychology students. And I was like, we can do better than that. Like, so at that point, our website was really, really growing. So we were were having massive amounts of traffic. We were killing it on like organic search. And I was like, we have so much traffic and everyone likes taking quizzes. We should be leveraging that. And so literally as simple as, we started really, really simple. And our, our research today is still very simple. It's like, Okay, here's this research on the contempt microexpression. You know, a one-sided mouth raise, a smirk. My hypothesis was that people confuse that for the opposite. So instead of being very negative or contemptuous, scornful, my hypothesis was that people confuse that for boredom or apathy. And actually, it's the opposite. So I was like, okay, we can test this. So I was like, take our our microexpression quiz. Two questions. Well, first, your gender, your location, your nationality. Okay. Like that, this is the basic demographic research, see if there was any cultural differences. And then what is this micro expression? A, contempt, B, boredom, C, sarcasm, D, happiness. Hmm. 25,000 people later, we had a pretty good idea of what most people think. And if there's gender differences, Yeah. super easy that, that took us 20 minutes to set up that quiz. Yeah. We posted on the blog. I sent it out in the newsletter. You know, a couple of weeks later, you have 25,000 data points. And then in the next presentation, I can say 76% of people confuse this for boredom. And that's what kills us in professional settings. If you may mistake contempt for boredom, you're missing a huge negative emotion. Yeah. That's a whole slide deck. Like that's a whole set of slides for me. Interesting. So are you just, is it just a series of different quizzes that you would offer from time to time of, hey, we're looking for some feedback on this specific thing. Yep. Run a quiz through our website. That's the research that we've done. That's what I'm going to be adding to my. And so it's just kind of adjusting as you're needing yeah. content or research on, on whatever given you know subject or topic. Exactly. So when I feel like I have a set of slides missing from my presentation or a hypothesis, or I get a question all the time from audience members, yeah. I'm just like, can I just answer this? 
Like, can I just answer this using big data? Now, we're not partnering with an academic institution. So we're not looking at IRB. You know, we're not using a lot of the academic methods. We are doing very, very simple experimental design, right? Like, and that's exactly what we share. Do you want to get into that? Like do it more from an academic based standpoint? Yeah, with the right partner, I would love it. You know, and we've had a couple of professors contact us and say, hey, would you mind partnering together? And I would be totally open to it with the right partner. Yeah, interesting. All right, I want to come back to something else that we were kind of talking about at the beginning is that we talked a little bit about this ahead of time. You are currently in the Portland area and you are getting ready to move to Austin, which, you know, it's okay. You'll (laughs) go through Austin to make it to Nashville. That's fine. (laughs) But my question is, one of the things that you'd mentioned is, you decided to move to Austin in large part because of speaking. Can you kind of elaborate on that of of what the thought process is there? Yeah, it was a major part of our move. So Portland is wonderful, great lifestyle, low cost of living. And there are a couple of big companies here. We have Nike, we have Under Armour, we have Intel, but that's it. Otherwise, it's a lot of law firms, (laughs) a lot of accounting firms, a lot of uh, logging. (laughs) You know, there's not a lot of medium-sized companies here. And everyone goes somewhere else for their retreats and there are no conferences here. So if you are a company, like some, a mid-sized company I was just talking to, they're flying to Hawaii for their retreat. So it's very, very hard to get local speaking gigs here, especially at my rate. Mm-hmm. And even the big companies, if you get one speaking gig there, that's it, right? You've done it and then you're done. So it's very, very hard to get conference work here. And conference work is magical because you get a conference that desperately wants a local speaker. They don't want to pay for housing or travel. That adds a lot to their budget. Um, They want you to be able to come early for tech check, whatever. Um, It's a lot less coordination for them. And so I was constantly getting asked to speak in Austin. We love Austin. Uh, Our best friends are there. We, it's lower tax rate. And so we're like, let's give it a try. So uh, yeah, we're going there so I can start speaking more locally. Interesting. All right. So is that part of the goal for you is that I still want to be speaking a lot, but as much as possible, you mentioned that you have a a one-year-old daughter. I just, I don't want to be, I want to speak a lot. I just want to be traveling as much. And so therefore I need to kind of go to where the events are happening. And I can charge less. Like my local rate is, is way lower and more reasonable than my national rate. And so, yeah, if I could do it and basically not travel at all for speaking, I would do it. Now that will never happen. But if I could just speak locally all the time, how great would that be? You know, you, you get up, you have your coffee with your coffee maker. I have breakfast with my daughter. You know, I drive to my speaking event, get on stage, give a couple aha moments, get back in time to get my daughter from school. Yeah. Not too shabby. Yeah. 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 Very true. All right. If you were looking back and going to redo it and change anything, is there anything that you would change uh, about the, the speaking journey that's led you to this point? I probably would have started charging more faster. The advice that someone gave me, I forget which speaker gave me this advice, but one of my speaking friends basically said, you're not getting no one out of every five requests, like you're not charging enough. And so it just took, I just waited too long to charge more because I think that I would have been, I could have traveled way less for a long time and actually got more bang for my buck if I just raised my rates sooner. Do you think that's just a confidence issue? I think it's a confidence issue. I think it's a scarcity issue, you know, like, oh my gosh, I really want this event. If I charge too much, I won't get it at all. So it's like loss aversion. And so it was, I was also, I was building up my career, an opportunity to speak in front of 500 people. That's 500 potential book buyers. That's 500 potential email subscribers. That's a a way for me to practice my speaking and hone my craft. And so it was also like, ah, there's other things I could get from this, not just money, not just cash. So yeah. it just took a long time to get over that. You feel like you're over it? 
Yeah. Oh yeah. So I'm charging a rate that makes me super uncomfortable, but I get it. So I got to keep it at that. Cool. Good for you. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, people want to find out more about you and uh, what you're up to. Where can we go? Yes. Scienceofpeople.com is where we have uh, all my videos and you can play in our lab and see my speaking page if you'd like. And of course, Captivate is wherever books are sold. Awesome. Vanessa, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. There you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vanessa Van Edwards. Make sure you check out scienceofpeople.com. Really good stuff there. We appreciate Vanessa and uh, it was good to catch up and and appreciate her hanging out with us. Hey, like I mentioned at the beginning, if you are interested in knowing what you should charge as a speaker, make sure that you check out myspeakerfee.com. Myspeakerfee.com. It is a free tool there that helps you understand uh, what you should be charging as a speaker. So just answer a couple questions. It'll tell you not just someone, but for you specifically, what you should be charging to speak. So again, check that out over at myspeakerfee.com. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.